Hey, City Church family, uh, Pastor Anthony here. Welcome to my home. I just want to uh, remind you of a few things in regards to our gatherings on Sundays. We will be gathering together virtually on our Facebook page live at 10 a.m., but we'll be posting those videos on our Vimeo, and you can re-watch them on Facebook. But just a few things as you prepare for that gathering. Um, grab a Bible, whether that's um, on a tablet or your phone or an actual physical one, because we will be working through the scriptures together. If you have the opportunity to grab elements for communion, we will be doing that as best we can every Sunday as well. And then we'll be giving you links for uh, songs that we think would be beneficial for you and your family to engage in um, after our time in the scriptures. And we'll be giving you links, obviously, in ways in which you can worship by way of giving. Thanks for joining us, and uh, yeah, we hope to see you. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Pastor Anthony's house. My name is Matt Derdarian. I'm one of the pastors of the City Church in downtown Springfield, Massachusetts. I'm joined by uh, Jim LaMontagne and Anthony Wirth. And uh, this time we find ourselves in the dining room, and uh, we have, um, we're going to pick up today in Mark chapter 15. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we've been looking at, um, at how Jesus is revealing himself as the king of all creation. Uh, and so today we come to this passage, chapter 15, it's going to be verses 1 through 20. So go and get that, um, go and get a Bible right now if you haven't already gotten one, so you can follow along as we read. And if you already, uh, if you haven't gotten it already, um, we will be sharing communion. So go and get some bread and some juice, and uh, and we can share communion at the end together as a as a whole community of body of Christ. So we're going to pick up in today's passage, um, and join us as we read Mark 15, 1 through twenty. And as soon as it was morning. The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many, see how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used the, sorry now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection there was a man called Barabbas and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them and he answered them saying do you want me to re release for you the king of the Jews for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the government's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. When, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. So let's pray. 
Father, we see here in this passage such such uh, violence committed against your son. Lord, we, we ask that you would reveal to us the glory that lies within these words. And Father, we ask that you would help us to see that this is not the end, but rather the beginning and the hope that lies before us. We thank you for your wonderful, wonderful, wonderful words and promises. Lord, help us to see you today more fully and more clearly. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. I'd like to start with a story of my own life. Um, when I was 18 years old, that's when the dinosaurs were still roaming the land. Uh, I worked in a, as a janitor in the Superior Court building in Springfield, Mass. I was born and raised in Springfield. And um, I never got along with those guys. You know, I, I kind of ragged on them a lot. I uh, made fun of them privately with other people. Uh, and I did this quite often, you know, being so intelligent as I was at 18. Till finally one day, somebody much older than I was turned to me and said, yes, after all my, uh, my put down of them, said to me, uh, you just don't see the value of them yet. And that had an incredible impact on me. And to this day, I still remember that, that phrase that the reason I did that is because I didn't see their value at all, and I needed to. Have you ever felt that way, taken someone for granted or failed to see their value, you know, in, in your life or in the world? Uh, for example, let's say your significant other in your life uh, goes away for a while, maybe uh, to visit their family, or, and you're left there in the house, right? Uh, so you have the kids, you've got the food, You've got the laundry, you've got other stuff you have to do that maybe this other person did. And suddenly you see the fact that there's a big gaping hole there <laughs> that's not filled. And, and maybe even the sense of companionship is absent. And you begin to see that there's value in that. Um, I know most of you perhaps haven't seen a child leave home yet. I have. Um, that leaves a, ga a, a, a gap um, where you have not really valued them, perhaps. You've taken them for granted. Now that they're gone, you suddenly see how they've added to your life. And the worst scenario would be, obviously, that we have an aging parent that passes away. And uh, suddenly there's a giant empty hole in your life. And you'd love to sit with them again and tell them how valuable they are to you. But, of course, that's gone. And uh, we do that a lot in life, don't we? Uh, many people look at Jesus Christ that way, too. They see him as a good teacher. He's a good man. He's uh, good for the kids. Uh, we relegate him to Easter and Sunday, perhaps. But we fail really to see who he really is. And we miss his true value, his true significance, and his true importance in our life and in the world. Even as people who follow Jesus on a daily basis, we can miss that importance in our life too. Um, have you ever met a follower, Christ follower, who, who, uh, who, to whom Jesus really doesn't make much of an impact on? 
uh, you know, you know the type. They they kind of uh, they're re he Jesus is reserved for Sunday. Uh, he's we he's reserved for just events that they do. And then when you come home and he's like he's like something like you take a coat off and hang him in the coat in the, in the in the closet, and we go on with our lives about about things, failing to see how significant he can be to us. W.A. Criswell once said that uh, if Jesus Christ suddenly left the church, uh, he doubted if anyone would know make it would make any difference to anyone, <laughs> and it would be business as usual. And uh, I don't think that's true here, uh, but it can be true, and it can be true in our lives too. Um, we're we're just we're going to look today at a group of people who failed to see his significance. They failed to see his identity and his importance in the world and what he came to do. And it's found in the passage we just looked at in Mark 15, 1 to 20. Yeah, so, so we're going to see first about how it is that these people or these groups of people um, failed to see Jesus, but also how it is that Jesus reveals himself at the same time. So even in the midst of people failing to see him, he never stops trying to make himself known, uh, which is really amazing and beautiful. So uh, this passage that we, that we read through and that we're gonna be talking through today is broken up into three parts, and we're gonna talk through each one. And as we talk through each one, we're going to mention how it is that there are people who miss or how it is that they're disillusioned, blind, um, but then also how Jesus is at the same time in the midst of it trying to reveal himself. And so um, really section by section, I'll break it down for you. We're going to talk about the disillusionment of Pilate contrasted with um, Jesus as uh, this humble, confident king in verses 1 through 5. Then the disillusionment of the crowd contrasted with Jesus' identification with the prisoners, namely that of Barabbas in verses 6 through 15. And then thirdly, uh, the disillusionment of the cohort or the Romans um, who are beating him contrasted with his subversive kingship in verses 16 through 20. So um, if you want to track along with us, by all means, track along with us. But we're going to start and uh, we're going to tackle this first one, the disillusionment of Pilate contrasted um, with the humble confidence of Jesus as king. And so um, with that in mind, um, these first, these first uh, few verses, uh, 1 through 5, we see some really kind of interesting things happening with the disillusionment of Pilate. His, his inability to see Jesus for who he is and the way that they interact with each other is really significant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's dripping with irony. The whole passage is dripping with irony. I was going to read the first uh, five verses, and we're going to kind of interact with it. I'm going to make some comments as I read it. As soon as it was morning, now we're talking about Friday morning, right? Okay, the chief priests held uh, a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. This, this group of people, the same group of people right after his triumphal entry in Mark 11, 27, that confronted him about his authority and what authority did he operate upon. And they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate's an interesting dude. <laughs> he uh, lived, uh, f he reigned in Judea. He's the longest reigning uh, 
uh, governor of Judea from 26 to 20 to 37 AD. Um, he's kind of a strange guy. He hated the Jews. Um, he also got in trouble for uh, executing some of the Samaritans who went up uh, Mount Gerizim. He was called to uh, report this back to Rome. Uh, but Tiberius died before he got there. And then um, uh, he had to face uh, Caligula. And he's even more of a wacko. Uh, and we don't know what happened to him, really, Pilate. Uh, there's legends that said that Caligula made him kill himself. We don't know. But here's one archaeological inscription of Pilate at Caesarea Philippi uh, that uh, shows that he was a historical figure uh, and that uh, he was very odd. He played, um, uh, he was in conflict with the Jews and he knew that he was under watch of Rome as well. And I think Anthony's going to talk a little bit more about him. And Pilate's asked him, uh, are you king of the Jews? Very important phrase. It's used five times in this, in this passage. Of course, uh, he's stating his actual identity. Pilate doesn't understand it that way. And that's the irony of it. And then Jesus answered him, you have said so. Uh, and the chief priests uh, accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, uh, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Interesting word, amazed. It's actually the Greek translation of the being astonished in Isaiah 53, which is a portrait of the suffering servant, who Mark is actually proving with Jesus Christ in his whole book. But here he uses the same term used in that time frame. So it's as the nations were astonished at the servant who suffers. So Pilate here uses the same word of being astonished. Yeah, Pilate's definitely an interesting figure. There's a, there's a lot of history about how Pilate took the role in which he has right here, to which Jim was kind of alluding to. Um, there's a lot of history behind it, but a, a lot of it has to do with um, him not actually wanting the position. So. Pilate ended up being the sort of head over Judea, but not as like a promotion. It was almost like a degradation. What do you talk? What, what's the opposite of promotion? <laughs> degradation. Yeah, he was. He, yeah, he was basically <laughs> obligated to this position that he didn't really want because there was so much turmoil happening in Judea at the time. There was so much. Um, there were revolts happening. The Jews were upset with the Romans, and so Pilate took this position as one who kind of had to. And because of that situation, the way in which he interacts um, is, is really key to this. So understanding how he took this position um, helps us to understand why it is that he was interacting in this particular way. He didn't, he didn't want to be in this position. Um, that's why he, you, you notice in other gospel narratives, especially John in John 18, he, he wants to just wash his hands and get away from it. He, he really wants nothing to do with this. So the interaction between him and Jesus here is, is a really you know, interesting one. So what's the significance of, uh, of Jesus acting, or I guess identifying a better word, um, act, identifying as the king? Is he, is he acting in a kingly way? Is it, is it predictable or is he kind of redefining what we know to be king? That's a great question. And I think it goes to the heart of Mark's message. The disciples didn't understand how he would be king. 
I think they wanted him to overthrow the government. Uh, and in the first, in chapter 8 to chapter 11, he's trying to, Jesus is trying to convince his disciples, that's not what I'm going to do. Okay, I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. And he does it three times significantly in Mark's gospel. They didn't get it. Uh, and they didn't understand it. They didn't understand how he could, how he could die. So here what we see is um, uh, the king of the Jews uh, establishing his kingdom through a subversive act of, of yielding and giving his life up. And, of course, we will see in the next section that he actually goes through with this. Yeah, yeah, but also, um, yeah, and we will see that in the next section, which is super interesting. But uh, there's something about the way in which Jesus asks the question, well, he doesn't ask, but the way in which he responds and then doesn't respond to Pilate. So Pilate asks him the question, are you the king of the Jews? The way that we write it down in our English translations is with a question mark at the end. So it's, it's almost like Pilate is curious. So tell me, are you the king of the Jews is the way that we read it. Um, but the way in which they wrote in, in the first century was, was not with punctuation the way that we do now. So it's really kind of hard to understand exactly the tone behind the statement. So we would assume because we put a question mark, it's sort of like, are you the king of the Jews? Um, but it's very likely, and many scholars state that really what's happening is that even though there, there might be a question mark at the end, it's more of a provocative statement, which is, are you the king of the Jews? You know, and there's a, you, you get there's a difference there. So he's, it's almost like he's stating something, which still sounds like a question, but he's really pushing it on him. And that's kind of interesting because Jesus brought Pilate to a place where he almost made Pilate say the truth. He, he got Pilate to say that Jesus is the king of the Jews out loud in front of him, which is a bit different than like a little bit of a conversational kind of thing, right? Um, so there's, there's something happening there where there's a tr it's almost like a transition of kingship. It's, it's almost like Pilate is actually ordaining him as king without even realizing that he's doing it which is, again, to the irony of the entire passage. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, so, correct me if I'm wrong, though, but that would have had a lot of very large implications for Pilate, too, as a Roman, right? Because as a Roman, he would have had to kneel to no one but Caesar himself. Um, so, so where does that bring us here with, with uh, Jesus in this passage and, and identifying as king? What are some of those implications um, in the Roman Empire. Yeah, so, so before we even get there, there I think there's, there's something that, that I forgot about while I was studying this until I went into the Gospel of John, which is why go to Pilate? What's the necessity there? So if you, if you back up, if you were involved in last week in, in our study, Jesus was taken to the Jewish authorities. And as a Jew, he was tried before the Jewish authorities. He was convicted. Why, why do you need to go to Pilate at this point? What, what difference does that make? They didn't need to. In, in their own like Jewish governing authorities, they were granted the rights by the Roman authorities to be able to exercise law for their own culture and, and communities. Um, and you see that throughout, actually, the gospel narratives and even after Jesus. So, so why go to Pilate? What's really going on here? And 
the only thing, the, the only reason that I can come up with is they wanted Pilot to do something that they couldn't do. So they had seen themselves as able to, not just seen themselves, they actually had the ability to do certain things within their governing authorities granted by the Romans who were occupying. And that included even killing. Like they were, they were allowed to execute some kind of capital punishment. So a few years later, you notice they stoned Stephen. Prior to this, they try to throw Jesus off a cliff. They try to stone him. There, there's many times, like they bring the lady who, uh, who's committed adultery and they try to stone her. They have no problem apparently committing capital punishment, but why do they need Pilate to involve himself in this? Because they could have just thrown him off a cliff, stoned him, as they were apparently okay with doing. And this is where Pilate's involvement, I think, is super key. Um, they wanted him not just to die, they wanted him to be crucified. Yeah, and that brings us to the next section. So we see here that Pilate uh, completely uh, uh, is dis uh, delusional and fails and blinded to the significance of Jesus Christ, even though he states it in his words, ironically. Now we're going to see the crowd and how they are blinded to who he is. And also, we introduce another character into this story uh, that plays a significant role that we'll talk about. So I'm picking it up in uh, chapter uh, 15, once again, in verse uh, 6. Now at the feast, uh, by the way, we don't know what feast this is. And there is nothing in the Jewish tradition that said that they actually did this kind of thing on a regular basis. We just don't have the historical data for it, where they gave up a prisoner on that feast day. But nonetheless, this is what happens in Mark. And at the, at the, <clears throat> now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, now that's an important word, because if you take your eyes and you go up to verse 15 in the latter part of verse 1, You'll see, and they bounded Jesus. And now if you go down again to in prison, actually, it's the same word. So right away, you're, you see an association of Jesus being bound with the prisoner that we're going to talk about in a second, uh, Barabbas, being bound. That identification is important, and we'll talk about it. Uh, among the rebels in prison uh, who had committed uh, murder in the insurrection... Uh, there was a man called Barabbas. Uh, Barabbas uh, is two words meaning son of the father. Uh, interesting irony. Uh, the real son of the father is going to die in his place. Uh, so you have Bar-Abbas. Abba would refer back to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus uses that name when he refers to God. And here you've got the contrast. You have Jesus using in, in an intimate relationship with the Father in contrast to a person in complete rebellion against them and, and, and God himself. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate uh, to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them and said, um, do you want me to release to you, and this is, I think he's sticking the knife in a little bit, the king of the Jews, the second usage of the term, for he perceived that it was, uh, it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him, uh, delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released 
for, uh, release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with this man? And this drink, he said, you, this man that you call, they don't call him that, but once again, he's being sarcastic. Uh, King of the Jews, third time that the term is used. And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Having, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, Mark kind of just goes right past the scourging aspect. Uh, this was an, an incredible thing to do to somebody, to destroy them. Uh, if you saw the movie The Passion, where uh, Mel Gibson, I think, unfortunately, takes a lot of liberties with uh, poetic liberties with the passion uh, aspects. But here, I think he's very accurate. If you remember, he, uh, uh, the, the, they scourge Jesus. They had, by the way, no limitation about how many whips they could do, or how many uh, lashes they could put upon an individual. The idea of it was to shred their flesh. And they had these uh, sort of cat of nine tails, if you can want to put it that way, whips that would leather and, 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 and tied into it with bits of metal and glass and so on. That, so when it would hit the skin, it would tear it. And in the movie, by the way, uh, Jim Caviezel, who plays Jesus, who is also a Christ follower, uh, tells a story of when he was being scourged as Jesus. And of course, they have this thing that wraps around him and, and it's uh, full of fluid, you know, it's called when they rip it, you see the blood come out. And he said that one time the, the, uh, the people doing the whipping, the actors doing the whipping, went too far on one side of his, of his uh, side of his ribs and one piece of the whip grabbed hold of his real flesh and tore it. And he said that he yelled out in, 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 in total pain and horror and screamed about this. And he said that was one little tear uh, of the flesh. So while Mark kind of goes by this, it doesn't mean that he's insensitive to it. It just means that his readers knew what was going on and they seen it in other people. And now they're seeing it here, of course, in Jesus. So, which to carry on from that is almost, you don't really know how to, because, but this is, this, this section actually right here of the way in which the crowds respond to Jesus and their disillusionment. Like, if I think about Pilate's disillusionment, and then I think about the crowd's disillusionment, I can, th I can put myself, I think, more readily into the shoes of the crowds. There's something about a mob mentality when people buy into some idea that is completely false that you immediately succumb to. Or, when I say you, I, I really mean me, too. But there's something happening here that is really crazy. Like, it's... It's again back to like the whole theme of this entire story is it's it's ironic that that there would be people who would be wanting and willing to have a person such as Barabbas, which if you read through the other gospel narratives, the way in which they tell the story of Barabbas and the history of why a person would be in this situation and why this person would be willing to be set free, like this guy was most likely 
not just an insurrectionist, but probably a murderer, a murderer of Romans, and that's why he was in this place compared to Jesus. And to think that everybody would be wanting him to be set free, as opposed to Jesus, who has not only never done anything wrong, but only done good. I mean, he's only healed the sick, fed the hungry, you know, give sight to the blind. I mean, it's just, and then here you've got this, this guy who is a prisoner. And I can't help but think that the reason that Mark is writing this and that the other gospel writers are writing this is because they're inviting us into how it is that we would respond in the same situation. That in a sense, not only are we the ones who would shout crucify him, but we're also Barabbas. We're, we're the ones who are, you know, the ones who have done evil and deserve worse than what Christ is receiving. But also, if given the opportunity, we would want to be set free, knowing full well also that we were the ones who did evil. So I think it, it really puts us, like Mark's trying to pull us into the story as to, like, who would you be? And we would, we would be shot and crucify him. But if we're really willing to step into the story, we would be Barabbas as well. And I think that's what's going on here is Jesus is trying to identify it as the prisoner. He's, he's taking on, as Paul would say, like, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And by that, I don't think he's referring just to like the wrongdoings, but, but sin is being a prisoner to something. It's being enslaved to something. And that's exactly what Barabbas was. And then he takes the place of Barabbas is this massive transition, right? Um, this, uh, yeah, the, the taking the place of. And I think it's not, it's, it's, uh, there's, there, we can take this even one step further um, because as an, an insurrectionist, uh, Barabbas would have been seen similarly to the things that Jesus was trying to do and set up in the world. Um, and so I think we have a contrast here of the kingdoms of the world in, in Barabbas in the way that he was trying to accomplish things and the kingdom of God and the difference between the wisdom of, of, of the world and the wisdom of God. Um, and we see that one is, is violent, one is trying to take over the world through power, one is trying to take over um, through, through forcing you know, uh, others into submission, and, uh, and then the kingdom of God you know, comes in and the kingdom of God is such that Jesus actually gives himself, submits himself to the powers as the strong one to overtake and to, to really um, set all the captives free and to forgive sin. Uh, and so we have this beautiful picture painted between those two different kingdoms. Absolutely. So first we see the, the blindness of Pilate and how he didn't have a clue about what was Jesus was about, even though he made a statement about his title and his character. Now we see the disillusionment of the, of the crowd who, uh, while they're crying crucif crucify him, Jesus Christ in a subversive way is actually going to be paying the price and, of their sin, which uh, uh, Barabbas is uh, sort of a symbol of. Now in the last part, we're going to see the, the blindness of the Roman cohort and what they did. So let's look at this. This is in verse uh, 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace at the Praetorian uh, uh, palace area and uh, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. Um, it was a tenth of a legion, which is about 600 men. Okay. 
And it's hard to believe that 600 men are gathered around all of this, but it's a big crowd. And they clothed him. It's the idea of dressing him up. Now, keep in mind that um, he's stripped. He's naked. Okay. His flesh has been kind of peeled off of him. And it's hanging off of him. And uh, they dress him up. This is hard to talk about. But he dress, they dress him up in a purple cloak. Purple, by the way, was forbidden to be worn by anybody uh, other than royalty. I hear the irony is just incredible. He is the king. But they dress him up in a, in, in a purple cloak, and they twist together a crown of thorns. It probably isn't a little wreath, okay? It probably covered his whole head. And, and they put it on him, and they saluted him. Hail, fourth time the term is used, king of the Jews. And they were striking him on the head with a reed. Of course, now they're, they're beating him. And they're driving the crown of thorns deeper into his skull and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. So now the blood starts to flow down his face, over his wounds. And when they had mocked him, they stripped off the purple cloak. Now he's naked again, okay? And the purple cloak... Um, probably would have adhered to his flesh uh, and the serum and the blood. And now they tear this off like it's a, like a bandage uh, off a, an open wound. And they put his clothes back on him, of course, and they led him out to crucify him. So here we see uh, not only the blindness of Pilate, we not only see the, the blindness of the, of the crowd who fail to see his significance. Well, we see even a deeper irony with the guards who um, hail him as king of the Jews. And in a subversive, ironic way, it's exactly who he is. Yeah, it's, it's almost hard to even elaborate on that... Um the way that Jesus takes his throne is yeah, all of those ways that Jim listed are the ways in which a king would actually take their throne, but in almost the most counterintuitive way, right? The most subversive way. Instead of actually getting a crown, actually getting hailed, actually, if you stirred my dog, I'm sorry, actually getting, you know, that placement, and here he is doing this in this ridiculously counterintuitive way, um, extremely subversive, and yet this is precisely how Jesus takes his reign, which takes us to, like, really kind of why this matters. So, like, we see all the irony in, in, these, in these three disillusionments, and we see even how it is that we're disillusioned in the same ways, right? The same ways as Pilate, the same ways as the crowds, the same ways as the Roman cohorts, we are disillusioned. We see the beauty of Jesus in his humble confidence and, and all these other ways as well. Um, but why does this actually matter for us? And um, we've come up with a few reasons why I think, you know, digging into this and thinking about this will really help us to be kingdom people in, in our day and age. And 
by our day and age, we're actually talking very even specifically about right now, given the situation that we're in, you know, um, with quarantine, isolation, you know, coronavirus, like all of these kinds of things. Like, we really want you to um, to think about how it is that you can follow Jesus right now. And so, we've got a few things for you. Um, the first is that uh, when we understand who He really is, and so, in other words, like not being disillusioned anymore. So when we really understand who he is, that we're free from fear. Uh, the second is that when we really understand who he is, that we're free from sin and death. And then thirdly, when we understand who he is, uh, we can help others actually be free too. Um, so I don't know if you guys want to hit on, on each of these, but... Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're very important uh, in regard to certainly the fear that we have. And in good grief, if I said fear, we're probably, if you've looked at the news, as you've mentioned, there's certainly fear to, that, that I'm impacted by. And, uh, and I guess it's okay to have that emotion, but um, that isn't governing my life. And uh, what's governing my life is who I understand Jesus Christ to be. And that he, in his death, uh, set me free from that. I don't have to answer to that anymore. And maybe uh, as we look at this news and as we are kind of sequestered together, um, we need to realize that we don't have to answer to that. Yeah, we need to be careful. We need to be uh, wise in what we do. We need to keep maybe physical separation. But fear in regard to our are who we are and uh, what might happen to us, uh, he's paid that price for us. Same is true for, I think, uh, being uh, free from sin and death. Uh, this is an amazing point that is, is brought forward in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6, is that um, we are no longer in bondage to sin. Um, we sin be today because we choose to. Uh, we are dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. And this is symbolized by the exchange of Barabbas in a theological sense. And even though at times we have no understanding of that, we fail to um, see that incredible significance, um, maybe we need to take, take stock in that again. We need to live that way that we are free from fear, we are free from the bondage of sin as prisoners. And also, it says that uh, if we really know his significance in our lives, we can turn and we can help others because we know that freedom, because we know the ability to be set free, and we can turn and help others, especially in this time to uh, uh, to just help, to provide food, to uh, reach out to others. Of course, within the boundaries of, uh, of distance and uh, not infecting more people as we help, but there's ways in which we can call people on the phone. How are you doing? And we can reach out to people. We can deliver food without in contact with them. We can, we can do things in this time to to really display the fact that we really get who He is in our lives. 
And I guess I'd like to close with a story that, that I heard. It's a true story that I think puts this all together for us. There was a wealthy uh, Englishman uh, by the name of Baron Fitzgerald. Uh, he had, uh, he's a very wealthy man. He had an incredible art collection. All the great artists of the world, uh, he had paintings by. And he also loved his son. He only had one son, uh, but he had great love and, and connection with him. Unfortunately, as his, uh, in his life, in his son's life, he, he became ill, and unfortunately he died. His son died. Uh, the Baron could never uh, recover from this, and, and in the rest of his life, he was uh, very occupied with the memory of his son. And of course, eventually, uh, Baron Fitzgerald died. And uh, he had no heir since his son was gone as well. So all of his paintings went up for auction. And of course, the entire uh, world kind of came into this auction. Uh, all the art collectors of the world came into this auction to bid on the various paintings that, that he had. And so the auctioneer, to start to the auction, put um, a simple portrait of his, of his son, of the Baron Fitzgerald's son. Up. It wasn't a fantastic portrait. It wasn't elaborate. Um, and maybe not even that, that good of a portrait. But he put it up for auction. And he said, all right, what are the bids on this? And uh, no one bid on it. Uh, so the auctioneer was saying, come on. Uh, this is the first painting in the, uh, in the uh, collection, and I want to have nobody bid on it. So finally, an old man in the back raised his hand. He said, listen, I was a servant in the house, uh, Baron Fitzgerald's house. And I knew his son. I loved his son. Uh, I'll buy the painting. And so for a nominal fee, he purchased the painting. And with that, the, the auctioneer threw down the gavel and said, uh, auction is over. And everybody said, what do you mean it's over? We haven't even bid on the, the artwork that's there. And then he read a portion of his will, Baron Fitzgerald's will. The will reads, whoever buys the painting of my son receives my entire collection at no charge. Because I want to reward anybody who loves my beloved son as much as I do. Whoever sees the value of God's son receives all that he offers in eternal life. That story had impact on me in regard to taking stock of his significance in my life. I don't want to miss it going forward. And maybe at this time when we're kind of sequestered and by ourselves, we can look again at, do we really get it? Do we really see his significance and what he did for us? Because all these people missed it. Let's not be numbered among them. And so as followers of Jesus, we, uh, we celebrate as the body of Christ together his death, and his giving of his, his giving of his uh, body, and the pouring out of his blood, and so uh, we do this now, here, today. And so, if you have it at home, we ask that you would join us.
with the bread and, uh, and your juice or your wine. And so at the Last Supper, Jesus said that this wine is my blood poured out and this, is my, this bread is my body broken for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. So this is what we celebrate and we remember him for. Gentlemen. And so that was one way we, in which we worship. Um, we ask that you would also join us in carrying on our worship. Um, there will be songs that we all would like to worship together to and sing together as a, as a community. So we'll post those along with this video. And there will also be a, um, a link at the end of the video where you can worship by giving. Uh, so we as the City Church, um, we, the, you know, the, we are a local body um, and, and part of the way in which we worship is by giving to the local body so that way we can continue to see the kingdom move forward in our, in our uh, city, our neighborhoods. Um, and if you're not a part of the city church, then we ask that you would keep your money. Um, and we don't ask that you would, uh, you would give. Um, but, uh, but if you do feel led to do that, then uh, please use the link at the end of this video. Yeah, and one more thing. If you're not a part of the City Church and you want to figure out how to be more involved or if you, you know, just want to join us in some other ways, by all means, reach out to us. Um, however it is that you saw this, whether it was a friend who shared it or you saw it on Facebook or uh, if you want to visit thecitywithin.org, you can find all of our information. We'd love to connect with you. Grace and peace to you.